Let's go to our scripture reading uh, for this morning. Uh, We're looking at Mark chapter 14, verse 66 to 72. Let's give our attentive uh, listening to the reading of God's word. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment, this time, uh, in which you give us what we most need. Uh, More than the songs we lift to you, the offering we bring to you, the fellowship we enjoy with one another, uh, Lord, you call us here so we would receive your word. Uh, because that is what our soul uh, needs the most. And that is why, Lord, we are here, uh, to receive uh, your word, your truth. Would you plant your truth in our hearts? Would you let it transform us and change us and affect the way that we, we live, the way that we think, the way that we love you and our neighbors? We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. We're going to take a short break from our uh, series in Revelation. Uh, For the next few weeks, we're going to look at the passages in the Gospels that um, uh, approach the the end of Jesus' life, his earthly ministry, uh, as a way of preparing ourselves for uh, Easter. And we're going to start with this one, uh, the story of Peter's uh, denial of Jesus. Uh, It's arguably the most well-known story about the Apostle Peter, unfortunately. (laughs) But um, I hope to show you intentionally so. uh, Now, before we we jump into the text, I want to just make a quick remark about the the history, the context um, of this. Peter comes up very consistently throughout the Gospel of Mark, and that's because Peter is the chief eyewitness uh, who was behind the Gospel of Mark. That's what explains the amount of detail that's recorded in this book, especially when it comes to Peter's experiences. For example, uh, when you read in verse 66, it says, as Peter was below in the courtyard, which is in the house of the high priest, um, and, and where Jesus' trial was taking place, um, his trial would have been on the second floor of the, the high priest's house, and there would be a courtyard by the main entrance where people who are not part of the trial would gather. That's, um, that's the kind of architectural detail and, and accuracy uh, that uh, for, for the audience during this time would have clearly indicated, right, this is by no means someone trying to make up a legend um, decades after the incident or centuries after that, for that matter. Because it's not like you can uh, Google 
what does a high priest house look like and, and um, where did Jesus' trial take place? Um, this is the kind of detail that comes from an eyewitness who was in that very situation on the grounds. I'll give another example in verse 70. Uh, when the bystanders say to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Well, how did they figure that? It's because they recognize his accent. Uh, it's, it's, it's like having a, a, a Savannah accent or a Texas accent. Um, he speaks like someone who's from Galilee, and that's a piece of linguistic detail that we might kind of gloss over or take for granted, but uh, serious historians would not, because this indicates to, to historians, ancient historians, this is not a legend. This is written like it's an eyewitness account. Uh, here's a final piece to this I'll mention. Um, this is a point made by Richard Bauckham, who's a New Testament scholar at Cambridge, and he says that the only way that Mark can record in such detail this humiliating account of the most revered, respected apostle and pastor uh, in, in early church history um, is if it was Peter himself who was testifying uh, to this event. If you were a lay leader in the early church and you're trying to spread the gospel, invite people out to church, your neighbors and friends, um, you would naturally want to hide this very embarrassing account about the most respected leader of the church that he denied Jesus three times out of cowardly fear. It's a terribly embarrassing account of the most influential leader. Right? Um, you wouldn't... I assume, right, wouldn't use this as a method of evangelism to go out and invite people to NCA and say, hey, you should come and visit our church. And if your friend were to ask, well, what's your church like? Well, uh, we have sound doctrine, you know, we believe in strong theology, and our pastor is a coward. <laughs> That's not the, the pitch you give uh, when you want to invite people out to, to church. Why is this here then? And Richard Bauckham says the only rational explanation why this would be so prominently displayed is because it's what happened. Uh, Peter is testifying to what happened exactly as it happened. And, and the point here is that when we look at the Gospels and consider how ancient history is recorded, uh, you can trust. You're looking at historically a very reliable document um, about the life, ministry, death, and as we will see on Easter Sunday, even the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These aren't legends. These are eyewitness accounts of what happened in history. Now, okay, that's how this came to be. I want to look at why this is here with you, okay? And, and, and why take a break from telling the story of Jesus to give us this eyewitness account of Peter's denial? How does this contribute to our understanding of the gospel? Does it? And it does. Uh, here we have uh, the great Apostle Peter at the trial of Jesus, in a sense, experiencing a trial of his own. Uh, Jesus is going through a trial. At the same time, Peter, on the lower level, is going through a trial by a different kind of judge and jury, and that is the public. Uh, Jesus is being tried by officials, right, rulers of this time. Peter is being tried by uh, the court of public opinion. The circumstances are very different, right? Jesus is put in physical chains and accused of blasphemy, which is punishable by death. He's beaten and spat on. Peter, on the other hand, his trial happens as he's just warming himself by the fire. But the outcome of his trial is almost as tragic. Uh, he hits 
his lowest point in all of his life because he fails this trial. Why is this here? And I want to give you three um, important things to consider kind of in sequence as we think about this passage. First, let's think about the gravity of Peter's denial. Second, uh, the lesson we can learn from his denial. And third, how he went from denying Jesus to denying himself. These three, okay? So the gravity of his denial, the lesson from his denial, how he went from denying Jesus to denying himself, okay? So point number one, the gravity of his denial. Um, Verse uh, 66, you get introduced to this servant girl. It says, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and and she's most likely a young teenage girl who was um, on this evening, one of the doorkeepers at the high priest's house, and she identifies Peter, and says, verse 67, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now, you have to understand the way she refers to Jesus here is, in their cultural context, something that's meant to be very condescending. Uh, It's naming someone by the region they come from uh, without using any other uh, titles. She's not saying rabbi or teacher. She simply says, the Nazarene Jesus uh, implying Jesus is someone who comes from a very low socioeconomic class, uneducated class, someone who has no credibility, and given he's, he's claiming to be the Messiah, he's a messianic fraud. And, and she says to Peter, you also were with that fake Messiah, the Nazarene, who claims to be the savior of the world. And, and that... Right, That was enough. That did it. That's all it took for Peter to cave and deny Jesus the first time. A teenage girl's condescending tone in describing Jesus as the Nazarene. Uh, Look at Peter's response in verse 68. I neither know nor understand what you mean. I have no idea what you're talking about. And uh, commentators make the point, this was actually a common form of legal denial in the ancient Jewish context. So if someone were to be accused of stealing an ox or something like that, uh, the defendant can say, I neither know nor understand what you mean, and that will be your kind of official plea of not guilty. It's a legal way of protecting oneself. In other words, Peter is not only ready to deny Jesus, he's ready to lawyer up and seal his denial in the legal context. He's saying, I'll sign my name on any legal document you want. I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. Now, you might ask, why go to that length, Peter? Well, um, in this court of public opinion, right, Peter is sensing there's another court that's trying Jesus in a very legal way, isn't, isn't he, right? He, he's being tried guilty. He's, he's, he's tried for blasphemy, and the scribes and the Pharisees are about to crucify him. So it would have been natural for Peter then to exonerate himself from any, any guilt by association. Now, what is he saying as he, as he says that? Don't associate me with him because I am innocent of whatever he is guilty of, right? The implication of Peter's denial here then is in, in securing his innocence, he's saying, I agree with you he is guilty. I I agree with you he ought to be accused, and I agree with you he ought to be, therefore, crucified. In in, um, maintaining his good name, he he surrenders Jesus' good name. 
All right, that sounds pretty bad, right? Uh, it gets worse. In verse 69, the servant girl sees him again, and probably after tending to some other business, she, she now speaks to the bystanders. And she says, this man is one of them. Right, now the audience is, is growing, right? and the voices are getting louder. Peter, at this point, even though the, the servant girl is not speaking directly to him at this point, Peter interjects, makes it very clear he is not a follower of Jesus. Right? He engages into the, in the conversation himself to say this very emphatically, I'm not one of them. And middle of verse 7, he goes on to say, after a little while, which probably means about an hour or two, uh, the bystanders now, right, without the servant girl present, the bystanders themselves point P- Peter out as a disciple. Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. They're kind of connecting the dots, putting two and two together. How does Peter respond to that in verse 71? He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, that's what the ESV Bible uh, says. It's a Bible we use. And that's not a bad translation, but it is more of an interpretation of what the literal uh, Greek says word for word. Um, And sometimes that's helpful, the kind of interpreting as opposed to the the direct translating. But here, I think maybe not as much. What the Greek literally says is not that he invoked a curse on himself, per se, but that he cursed. And and the thing about this Greek verb is you you have to have an object, meaning um, he, he had to have cursed someone or something, but it wasn't himself. And so this is where some of the commentators and theologians uh, make the reasonable case, I think. Peter was actually cursing Jesus. Um, Because that would have been pretty definitive in the ancient Jewish context. If you can curse out someone, uh, you are clearly not his follower. So this is Peter's way of saying, I am absolutely not a follower of Jesus Christ. You want me to prove it to you? I'll prove it to you. (laughs) He curses Jesus. It's beyond uh, cowardly at this point. It's, it's gone to a sort of wickedness, would you say? Uh, he's cursing the name of his friend and rabbi, his Lord, whom he knows is innocent of any sin, uh, knowing that he's about to be crucified. He, he doesn't say a word of defense on his behalf, but curses him. And this is the same Peter who just hours ago... Uh, said, even if I have to die with you, Lord, I will never disown you. And in a matter of hours, uh, on a trial by public opinion, he's completely unraveled, completely undone, uh, takes a dreadful fall. This is Peter's absolute lowest. This is when he becomes most disqualified, most miserable most unfaithful. Okay. Why on earth is this here? How is this going to encourage us? Uh, And we therefore go to point number two. Uh, I think there are a lot of lessons I think people have pointed out from this passage, but I just want to highlight one for you. This one uh, you shouldn't miss. Lesson from Peter's denial. The lesson is this. Peter is teaching us that our status as disciples of Jesus Christ 
as those who have the right to be children of God, has absolutely nothing to do with how well we stand trial for him. It is not at all based on our performance, our track record, not at all on how well we live up to his name in the court of public opinion. And it's not certainly based on how strongly we commit ourselves to him, how adamant we sound when we commit our lives to him, how strongly we profess our faith. I'll die for you before I disown you. If it was uh, based on any of these things, the Apostle Peter would not have existed. What is the basis then? If it's not a performance, not our, not our profession of faith, not our strong commitment and vows to the Lord, what is the basis then of our being disciples, being children of God? It can only be the mercy of God and the faithfulness of our Savior, Christ. The mercy and faithfulness of God freely given to us who are most undeserving. I believe this is here as a way of Peter's sharing with us his testimony. While I was miserably failing in my trial, Christ faithfully stood trial for me. And that's how I'm saved. It's what really Paul says about all of our um, testimonies as Christians in Romans 5, 9. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You have to let that sink in. This means uh, while Peter cursed his name, Jesus claimed Peter's name and adopted him. When Peter was most disqualified, most unfaithful, Christ qualified him by his own mercy and by his own faithfulness. The, the most important lesson here we have to learn from Peter's denial is not how we can avoid epically failing like Peter failed. The point is we all fail like Peter failed. And the lesson, therefore, is to see how epically saving Jesus is for those who fail. And that this is why he came, to save sinners at their lowest, at their most miserable, at their most unfaithful. And that really is the function of this word that we throw around a lot, the word grace. Uh, grace is, is Jesus wanting Peter as Peter denies him and curses him. Grace says, I want you. Grace is Jesus standing trial uh, for Peter, uh, even as Peter is failing to stand trial for him. And this did not disqualify Peter from sonship or discipleship. 
in a weird way, it qualified him. It qualified him to be a true recipient of God's mercy and grace. God's love comes to the least deserving. That's the lesson. Even to those who deny him, even to those who curse him. Jesus, literally, right, on the cross, blessed those who are cursing him. Father, forgive them. Bless them with your mercy and forgiveness and grace. He blessed those who cursed them. And that is how God saves everyone. This is how God saves uh, you and me. And that is why the story of Peter's denial is here. It doesn't cloud the gospel. It illuminates it. So, so much more clearly. And if you realize this, uh, this beautiful grace, uh, amazing grace of God, this, this crazy, incomparable, out-of-the-world love of your Savior in Jesus Christ, this will change you, and it will free you the way it freed Peter. Uh, notice how free he is at this point. <laughs> as he is telling this story, testifying to his epic failure and making it public for all the world to see how free he is now from the court of public opinion. If he was concerned about protecting his name, uh, this story would never have made it into the Gospels. Peter is not out to protect his name, is he? Uh, he's actually out to deny it to make himself decrease so someone else might increase. He's gone from denying Jesus to denying himself. And let me close uh, by giving you some context as to how this happened. Uh, you have to know what happens later in Mark chapter 16, after uh, Jesus' resurrection. After the resurrection, the angel appears uh, to, uh, to, to the women at the tomb, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And the angel says to the women, go and tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that he is risen. Right, isn't it interesting? He says, the angel says, go and tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that he is risen. Why would he say that? Isn't Peter already a disciple of Jesus? Why would he say, go tell his disciples and Peter? Here's why. Because by that time, Peter had counted himself out out of the fellowship of the disciples. After his uh, denial of Jesus in shame and guilt, perhaps judgment from his fellow disciples, he walked away from the fellowship. He effectively excommunicated himself. But here's the angel sending him a message from Jesus, and what's the message? Peter I'm still counting you in. So don't you count yourself out. And my fellowship with you was never about you deserving me. It was always about undeserved grace. Uh, Jesus' words, his message for Peter was the gospel. Good news. I've died for you, Peter. And I have risen for you, and I have loved you, and I still do. Uh, my love for you is steadfast and unchanging. 
this is how Peter goes from um, denying Jesus to save his own name to denying his name and embracing Jesus and his name. The, the key to his freedom was the gospel, that, that we are not saved and made right with our maker through our performance, our works, but by his grace alone, in his son, Jesus Christ alone. And when you find this love of God for you to be real and, and it becomes beautiful in your eyes and life-giving, you will then begin to let go of other means of beautifying your name and securing your life and, and surrounding your life with glories because there is nothing more glorious than this. You can never beautify your name, your life, your identity more than how Christ has already done that for you. And when you realize that you have a maker, you have a God who makes so much of you, uh, that is when you'll be freed from the need to make much of yourself. That's the key to denying yourself. It's, it's, it's this freedom to forget yourself because of the one who so remembers you and cherishes you and loves you. Like we prayed earlier, we, we no longer need to be consoled as to console. We no longer need to be understood as to understand. Because we, we have a Savior who consoles, who understands, and who sees. And we don't have to be so obsessed with our, our self-esteem. You know what the problem with our self-esteem is, is it always puts us on trial. And we have to fend for ourselves in that courtroom with our uh, achievements, with our possessions, with our appearance, uh, with our pleasures. But the thing is, you will never come out of that trial. You will never be acquitted. You will never be justified. That trial never ends. We'll never achieve enough, we'll never possess enough, we'll never enjoy enough. But when you let Jesus represent you in the court, he is your defender and mediator. And when you see what he has done for you, how he has forgiven you your sins, you'll walk out of that courtroom fully justified, fully vindicated, fully loved your identity will finally be secure. And this is how we move away from the, the life of standing trial before the world. Uh, getting out of bed because you have to prove something. Going to work and seeking that promotion, finding a relationship, because you got to prove your worth to yourself and to the world. That trial ends when Jesus represents you in that courtroom. You have a Savior who sees you for who you are and loves you as you are, and he makes you more and more like himself.
uh, may God grant us this this freedom um, at NCA to to live this um, self-denying, God-glorifying life. Let's remember this as a church, that God has loved you with a love that is stronger than your worst sins and and failures. That, That grace loves to draw near to the worst and to the lowest. That's what grace does. And let that justify you and identify you more than anything else in this world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this story, this account in which we we see ourselves uh, so much. Uh, We are Peter, uh, fearfully standing trial before the world and seeking to justify ourselves and and miserably failing to do so. Lord, may we stand upon the rock, the rock of our salvation, Christ. May we hide behind him, in him. May he be our refuge. Help us to find all that we need uh, in him. And Lord, throughout this season, uh, as we approach Easter, um, help us to draw nearer to his grace. The grace that came to embrace uh, the worst of us and the least of us. And, and Lord, increase our, our thanksgiving, our gratitude, our affections, therefore, uh, for our risen Savior. Uh, and may our worship and our, and our discipleship grow as a result of this. We ask all of this in the merciful and and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.